Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. I'm an oceanographer, and on this podcast I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I started this podcast a few years ago because I really like talking to and learning from other researchers. I've been especially thankful to have this little outlet during the pandemic. It's given me a way to connect with some other scientists that I might only normally run into at conferences or get introduced to at conferences. So for me, I'm very thankful. It's provided me a, a way to sit in that space between work and social that we sometimes have in science. And I've heard from some of you that the podcast has been uh, that for you as well, something that sits in that space between work and social and science that we uh, normally can get so much out of, but that really obviously took a big hit uh, during the pandemic. Okay, yeah, so I'm always excited to bring you these conversations, and likewise, I'm excited to bring you this conversation. We were joined by uh, Christophe Kittel from the University of uh, Liège in Belgium, and also by our usual co-host, Dr. Ella Gilbert. But in this case, Ella joined us not so much as a co-host, but as a an author. She's one of the authors of a study that we ended up talking about. It's a paper by Ella and Chris. It's titled Surface Melt and Runoff on Antarctic Ice Shelves at 1.5, 2 degrees, and 4 degrees Celsius of Future Warming. And that is published in Geophysical Research Letters. It came out very recently. And we'll have some links in the show notes as well and in the associated tweets and things that I'll put out with the episode. So yeah, I don't want to spend too much time talking up here, up front. Let me just say thanks for listening, thanks for downloading, um, thanks for leaving your reviews and for rating. That's all very appreciated. You can find Chris on Twitter at C2, the number two, Cattell. You can find Ella at Dr. underscore Gilbs with, with a Z or a Z. And I'm at Dan Jones Ocean. You can follow the podcast at Climate SciPod. And more credits at the end, of course. Okay, let's go ahead and get into this conversation with Ella Gilbert and Chris Cattell. Here we go. So, thanks for joining me. This is good to see you. It's good to see both of you. Good to meet you, Chris. Good to see Ella. So where are you two? I know Ella's in London and Chris, where are you? In Liège, from Belgium. Still here. Belgium. I've yeah. almost never moved from here, so yeah, still in Liège. <laughs> yeah? Are you that, moving? Been... Sorry? Are you moving when you go to Grenoble? Uh, yeah. Um, I hope that I will be firstly move to Utrecht, Netherlands, oh. for three months. If I get a, a grant, and then uh, for two years in Grenoble in French. To so, Imau. Yeah. Nice. Exactly. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> where, where did you say, Ella? Is that an institute? Imau is the Institute of Marine and Atmospheric. You and then yes, I don't know something. you. <laughs> no, it's it's a an, an institute at the University of Utrecht. Uh, they do lots and lots of regional climate modeling work in the polar regions and of course that's re very relevant to what both Chris and I um, have done in the past. They run a model yeah. called RACMO. Uh, 
and they are a really fantastic group they do some really cool work so i'm excited for you chris that's going to be great yeah i really hope that i will have the the grand and and go there it's only for a very small postdoc but yeah it's already some yeah super nice experiments and yeah hmm. so cool oh, <laughs> amazing excellent fingers crossed hopefully you thanks that all <laughs> goes your way hope that all goes your way yeah well speaking of regional climate modeling in the Antarctic and the Southern Ocean. Why don't we just hop right into talking about your new paper and geophysical research letters. Came out in April and uh, that's just got you two as the co-authors, Gil Gilbert and, oh, how do you say your last name, Chris? Uh, Kittel. Kittel, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Talking about surface melt and runoff on Antarctic ice shelves under a few different scenarios of future warming. So I thought what we could do, Ella, you put together this really nice tweet thread and I'm just going to be, I'm going to go through that and just ask you obnoxious questions about it. Hopefully not too obnoxious. But, um, amazing. Know. I love obnoxious questions. <laughs> <laughs> Chris did the French version. Oh, cool. Yeah, but I've um, only translated what you, you firstly write, so. <laughs> oh, that's fine. Perfect. <laughs> Ask obnoxious questions about the French <laughs> or the English versions then, Dan. Nice. <laughs> At the same time. <laughs> <Mais Amazingly. oui. laughs> so I'm just looking at it now. And uh, so, Ella, you posed the question, or I guess in this paper you posed the question, what is going to happen to Antarctic ice shelves with varying levels of climate change? So you, Chris Cattell, and you've written a paper together and... Oh, you made it open access, so that's really good. Everybody should just, everybody has free access to it. It's not hidden behind a paywall. You don't even have to go hunt for the preprint, which I like preprints myself, but it's really nice when you can just click on the paper and get yes. it directly. That's thanks um, to the British Antarctic Survey. So big shout out to them. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> nice. yeah there's some funding for gold open access um, publication, isn't there, to where there's no paywall and... Yeah, you can all. Yeah, that's good. Good. So you use the high resolution regional climate model, MAR, and we can start right there. So first, a regional climate model. So that just represents a particular part of the Earth system. So I guess you've got Antarctica in there, obviously, and some of the ice shelves and uh, some of the ocean. Do you also have an ocean representation or is it more of a representation of just the ice and atmosphere kind of system? It's, I mean, uh, I can give a description of regional climate models, but I'm going to pass straight over to Chris for the details because Chris is the modeler, uh, Chris ran Mar, and Chris knows a lot more about Mar than I do. Uh, but regional climate modeling in general is that you take, instead of having an entire representation of the globe, which necessarily has to be quite coarse and you don't get very much detail, you can zoom in on specific areas by having a representation of what's going on in the globe from some kind of data that you feed it, um, whether that's historical observations, analysis from a global model, or it could even be reanalysis. Um, and then you zoom in, you have a much, we call it a nest sometimes, or um, an inner domain that is over the area that you're interested in. Um, and you can actually have lots of different domains within domains, like little Russian dolls. 
if you mm -hmm. like. Um, and that it's like a magnifying glass, essentially. So you have the global resolution model and then you have your magnifying glass and it zooms in and it tells you mm -hmm. things that are interesting at much finer scale. So in the Antarctic, things like precipitation, clouds, um, sublimation, uh, how blowing snow moves around, um, how melting happens, the topography, all of these things are really, really important and um, affect things like melting and runoff and therefore the consequences for ice shelves in the future. So having them at very coarse resolution, there's not much point. It doesn't mm. tell you very much. So you need this regional climate model scale to be able to, to do anything interesting. And MAR is an excellent polar regional climate model that Chris is going to tell you more about because that's what? the limit of my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> what does MAR stand for? M-A-R. Uh, it's um, Model Atmospheric Regional. It's in French, so it's Regional mm. Climate Model. But uh, yeah, Regional Atmospheric Model, yeah, basically. And okay. I think that the, the model has been developed uh, since maybe a bit more than 20 years now. And it really started for uh, studying the Antarctic ice sheet. So it's yeah, it has been fully developed for that specific um, point. And so, so yeah, just like uh, LSMR is, uh, yeah, so it's uh, a magnifying glass and we try to improve the representation of all the climate process that are relevant for, the, for, the, for both ice sheets. And so, yeah, in MAR, we have an atmospheric part uh, that is yeah, just we try to uh, represent the fundamental equation of the atmosphere. So that's really the physical part. So it's not mm -hmm. parameterization; it's really the physical science. And yeah, that's maybe the most complex thing in MAR, but you have that in all the climate models. Mm. So yeah, it's really yeah. the basis. And so it has layers, it has yes, like grid exactly. cells, and it has you know a vertical structure. Yeah, and exactly. Ella called it high resolutional. What uh, high resolution rather? What does uh, what does high resolution mean in this context? How small of a scale are we talking about? Um, yeah, I think it was uh, 35. Uh, 35 but it's, kilometers? Yes, for each uh, corner of the grid cells, but it's maybe it's not so high because Mark can uh, be run at something like 5 kilometers of resolution. Mm. But for all the Antarctic domain, it's quite high because, you know, every time you increase the resolution, then you need more computers and more yeah, time simulation. And, and so we have to, to mm -hmm. find a kind of a compromise between the computational time, the resources that we need, and yeah, the, the resolution we want to have. Mm. Cool. Yes, yeah, so that point that resolution is all, it's all very subjective because high resolution to one person might be some very coarse to someone else. I, in my PhD, I did one and a half kilometer uh, simulations, which I considered high resolution. So in this context, 35, is quite a lot coarser, but then again, it covers the entire Antarctic instead of just one ice shelf. Yeah, so exactly. Much for muchness, as Chris says, it's a compromise. Always, yeah. There's always a trade-off between resolution and the computational resources that you need to run a model. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yes, exactly. So, does it? And I'm sorry if you mentioned this a second ago. Does it have an ocean at all? Is there some representation of the ocean? Uh, not yet. It was actually okay. part of my uh, thesis, but um, mm. in this uh, paper and the simulation, we are a bit more simplified for the ocean side. So just basically, we have the sea ice and uh, the sea surface temperature, and the um, sea ice concentration comes from the reanalysis. So we just frost those variables to, to Mars. So we don't have a full representation of, of the ocean. 
But yeah, to still have some interaction with the ocean for sure. If if the the sea surface is warmer, then it will warm the air, and the opposite mm -hmm. is always true for sure. But it's it's yeah. simplified. Yeah, so you have a realistic representation of sea ice and the ocean surface in the sense of the sea surface temperature, but those factors can't change with time. So is it fair to say that this particular study focuses on the response of the ice uh, to the atmospheric part of the forcing, like the gen general kind of warming? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So the next part, Ella, you mentioned that you, uh, you two downscaled four CMIP climate projections, RCP 8.5 and SSP 585 for warming intervals that are still plausible. And Ellis, you said, uh, don't at me, uh, indicating <laughs> that there is sometimes some, some discussion, some vigorous discussion about these projections on Twitter about uh, which vigorous ones are plausible. Vigorous being the word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. About whether these are plausible scenarios or, or not. But the fact is, you know, that there are possible future scenarios and you have to pick some set of them. Um, and you didn't, you don't necessarily want to get endlessly bogged down in which ones are plausible versus which ones are not. You want to explore some possible futures, you know, for, exactly. for a scientific study. Can you say a little, a little bit more about what downscaling means in this case, what downscaling the climate projections means and what those scenarios are? I mean, downscaling it literally is just applying that magnifying glass. So it's taking this data, whatever that data is, it could be reanalysis, it could be a CMIP projection of the future, and then using it to force or to feed in the information to the outer edges of your inner domain that's a magnifying glass. And you feed that info in, and then the inner magnifying glass of Mars uh, goes, hmm, okay, this is some nice information. I'm going to tell you what I think I would do with it if this was the reality. Does some number crunching and then produces a simulation. Um, so the downscaling element is using the model to add the finer detail from the to the, the CMIP projections of the future, which of course go out to 2100. And those are the potential future scenarios that are run by various different global climate modeling centers. And they were mm -hmm. a subset. And Chris and a colleague did some really excellent work to figure out which of those uh, models, those global climate models, simulations, the CMIP projections should be used because there are so, so many. Some of them are better, some of them are worse. Some of them are not so good at representing the polar regions. Some of them have different, basically, as we know, all models are wrong, that famous quote. Some mm -hmm. of them are useful. Yes. And some of them are more useful than others. And Chris did some really great work to figure out which ones were the most useful for mm. the Antarctic. So does that involve figuring out, when you say which ones are the most useful, does that involve figuring out which ones seem to represent the polar regions the best in terms of they can reproduce past trends and they generally have the kind of sensitivity that we expect them to have. Is that the sort of idea? Yeah, exactly. For, yeah, it's, yeah, we don't look at the trend. We did something very simple. We just look at the mean and we try to, to check that the, yeah, the, the, the models correctly represent the, the current condition over the, over the Antarctic. And then if the model was okay, then we, we selected it. But mm -hmm. uh, for some, 
most uh, advanced selection, yeah, then yes, we, we look at the trend, but we are already very happy when the model can correctly represent the mean climate. So the trend is maybe the, the next step, but it's not so easy for, for them. And mm. yeah, usually they, they don't represent the trend. So we are already glad when we have the mean. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned RCP 8.5 and SSP 585. Um, those are, can you say more about that? Those are, from what I understand, the emission scenarios where not much changes, as in where we just keep burning a lot of fossil fuels, basically. Would, is that uh, an accurate description? How would you how would you describe this? I would <laughs> describe that pretty accurately. Yeah, I mean, oh, okay. the well, two they're... different versions of the same thing. Mostly, mm. it's just that uh, RCP is the kind of CMIP five language. SSP five eight five is the same thing in CMIP six language. So they're yeah. very very similar scenarios of the future, which is essentially zero mitigation kind of four-ish degrees of warming by the end of the century. And it's assuming it's kind of a worst case, not worst, worst yeah. case, but a one of the worser cases. One of the <laughs> worst really cases. One worse? <laughs> <laughs> uh, is there, is there maybe, a, I bet you could design one that's worse than this. You probably, I feel like you probably could, right? Like if you really aggressively ramped up um, I don't know, putting lots of methane in the atmosphere, lots, lots more aggressive burning of carbon dioxide. I'm not sure, actually. I haven't, that's not something I'm familiar with. I'm um, sure you could. I'm not sure it's an yeah. exercise that would be particularly helpful. Maybe it would just be really dis dis disheartening. Maybe. Like, yeah. What's the actual <laughs> worst case scenario? Like, if we really Sun explodes. Of the carbon. <laughs> um, well, that one we don't have to. I mean, there's no human <laughs> anything that we need that we have. We can't do anything about that. Is my point? Like, if that True. happens, we we have no responsibilities at all. <laughs> We're just like, well, the sun explodes. Nothing we can do about that. So, you getting back to your Twitter thread, you said that you focused on melt, runoff, and the surface mass balance to project the likely risk of ice shelf collapse due to hydro fracturing. Um, so that is what you said, meltwater collecting on the surface, indicating fern densification and ice destabilization like we saw before the collapse of Larsen B. Shall we dig into that a little bit? So Yeah, there's melt, a lot of info in that. <laughs> um, so runoff is, from what I understand, you get some melt going, that's running water that then can flow into the sea or it can flow over the ice and then eventually into the sea. And you talked about the surface mass balance as well. Do we want to start there? Sure. Talking about the yeah. surface yeah. mass balance a little bit more. What do you think? Uh, Can you expand on it? That's the easiest part. I think surface mass balance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it just so if you look at some point of the the ice sheet, then the surface mass balance is just the the difference between the mass that accumulates at the surface, so through sublim uh, through uh, precipitation, and the mass that is lost by the ice sheet. Uh, essentially to uh, sublimation and uh, runoff. So yeah, just a positive surface mass balance will tell you that there is more snowfall that are accumulating at the surface and a negative mass balance just tell you that the ice sheet is losing mass. So that's the easiest part. Yeah, it's a simple equation, in versus out. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're interested okay, in the surface particularly because that's what's driven mostly by the atmosphere. And the context of Larsen B, I guess, is a way to explain that. So Larsen B is this ice shelf on the Antarctic Peninsula, or was this ice shelf on the Antarctic Peninsula. Mm. And it collapsed really, really quickly in over about six weeks in 2002. Um, and We've, we know that the reason for that is this surface process called hydrofracturing. And hydrofracturing is essentially cracking by water. It's in the, in the name, just hidden in the jargon. Mm -hmm. And it occurs when you get water running off the surface or collecting on the surface in these big ponds and then flowing into existing cracks, crevasses, rifts, this sort of thing, filling those up and then once that starts to refreeze and expand, it causes them to kind of catastrophically penetrate to the bottom of the ice shelf, splinter into a million different pieces, and then the ice shelf collapses. And that can only happen after the ice shelf has gone from being in its kind of normal stable state, which has lots of air pockets and kind of has like this spongy layer of fern uh, at the top, which is mm. not quite snow, not quite ice yet. It's got lots of air pockets and pores which can absorb water uh, in after a summer melt season um, and if that fern layer isn't replaced or replenished every year by new snowfall so if more melt happens than snowfall happens then you get this fern layer being completely saturated and it starts to freeze and, and you essentially have an ice shelf that's a, a solid block of ice instead of an ice shelf that has a fern layer and a snow, snowfall at the top. Uh, and that's what we say, fern densification. So it's just the fern has become a dense block of ice and then you can get hydrofracturing occurring. So that's why we were interested in the surface processes because it's not to say that the rest isn't interesting, it's just that surface meltwater ponding and the collecting of meltwater on the surface indicates that the ice shelf is densified it's one block and therefore that it is vulnerable to collapse mm. okay yeah so it sounds like well let me just ask so is there a representation of this process in the model that you used is there an ice um, sheet model in or is are you looking at the are you looking at meltwater as like a risk factor Yes, exactly. It's more like a risk factor, a kind of proxy, a variable that tells us if there will be the, the collapse. Because, um, yeah, representing the collapse is absolutely not yet implemented in any models for now. Mm. Uh, even for the ice sheet model, there is no collapse yet. So it's just a simple parameterization. They say, okay, there will be a collapse. They remove the, the ice shelf. The ice shelf mm. And then, yeah, we, we cannot yet represent that. And yeah, because simply we don't completely know what will cause those uh, collapse. It's mm. quite really difficult and quite unknown for now. And am I right yeah. to say, Chris, as well, that the runoff uh, representation is also a little bit simplified. So it's, it's actually in Mar. Runoff is just a measure of there being meltwater at the surface. Because in real life, you know, you can get meltwater in lakes. It can run over the ice sheet. It can go into the ice sheet. It can do all sorts of different things, um, ice shelf even. Um, and it does a lot of stuff that we don't really know either yeah. yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so putting yeah, it into a model is really, really hard. Yeah. And that, that highlights 
you know, this kind of work is just at that cutting edge of, well, here's what we can do with the tools we have, but there's still a lot more that could be done in terms of model development and process understanding and, um, you know, incorporating all of this into a common framework. So we're, we're far from being done on the kind of model development and application side, but it's important to like learn what we can with the tools we have now, um, especially since this stuff is so urgent. Uh, yeah, so moving on, you said, surprise, surprise, more warming equals more melt and more runoff. The surface mass balance increases over the ice sheet as precipitation rises, but over ice shelves, runoff is greater than snow increases. And you said that's consistent with Cattell, another study by Chris from this year, also 2021. Um, yeah, so Chris has been busy. Balance, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Not so uh, much. <laughs> hmm. Could you unpack that a little bit for me? Is that all right? So surface mass balance increases over the ice sheet as precipitation rises. So we'll start with that. So you're saying that there's more precipitation in some areas? Yeah, but actually, so you know, surface mass balance is just a balance of competitive process. So we have the accumulation, mm -hmm. and the, on the other hand, you have the um, yeah um, the ablation. And in warmer climate, and it's, maybe it's a bit strange, but when the air will be warmer, then it will hold much more humidity, and mm -hmm. this increase in humidity will simply tr be translated into much more precipitation. So that's for the more increase in accumulation, and yeah. And, the increase in erosion is quite logical. Then you have warmer here, and then it melts the snow, and so you 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 have runoff. So depending on where you you look at on the ice sheet, it's one of or the other one that is uh, the the main process. So over the interior of the Antarctic ice sheet, then you will have much more precipitation, but mm -hmm. since it will still remain quite cold, then you don't have too much runoff, and so you have much more accumulation, and then a positive surface mass balance and over the margins and especially over the ice shelf that are located uh, close to the sea level then it's more the, the melting that is increasing faster and then you decrease the surface mass balance because you don't have this uh, increase in precipitation it, it, there is an increase but it's not as uh, strong as um, over the, the grounded ice to yeah to compensate the the runoff yeah, okay, Chris wrote yeah. a really nice paper just explaining the differences between the, the ice sheet versus ice shelves and what's likely to happen in actually using uh, the same CMIP models. So um, it, it, it's really an, an interesting distinction to see, that especially over places with very steep terrain. So the, mm. the coastal ice sheet kind of peripheries where you get for example, the Antarctic Peninsula has these really steep uh, mountains that are maybe 2,000 meters high. Um, you get loads of snowfall um, just there because the atmosphere is so much warmer. It precipitates more. You get so much snow, uh, sometimes rain even. Um, and that is already quite a warm part of the Antarctic mm -hmm. and it already has quite a lot of precipitation. So you just see this very uh, steep increase in the amount of uh, accumulation. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So in the future, you're saying in these future warming scenarios, because warmer air can hold a little bit more moisture that you could actually get more precipitation in some parts of the Antarctic, like 
over the interior, for example. But exactly. if I understood you correctly, you're saying that over the ice shelves, which are the protruding tongues of ice that are floating on top of the ocean, in those places, the runoff looks like is going to be greater than that precipitation increase. So Precisely. overall, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and we should link to Chris's other paper too uh, when we release this so that people yes. can go. It's a good read. It's a good read. These. Yeah. It's in the cryosphere, which is also an open, I believe that's also an open access journal, if I'm not mistaken. I think all the EGU ones are. So yeah. you can, yeah, you can just go click on it and look at it. Good. Okay. So this is now moving on to five. This is great. This tweet thread is so useful. <laughs> Um, should do it for every podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is really good because we're basically just going, we're going through the figures and the main point of your paper, really digging into it. So you said that we see nonlinear increases in runoff with warming, uh, indicating a much greater risk of ice shelf destabilization at 4 degrees C than 1.5 degrees C or 2 degrees C. So Basically, if a change is linear, then it just kind of increases at the same rate, no matter where you are in the in the parameter space, whatever you want to call it. It always increases at that same rate. But you're saying that the uh, the, the rate of runoff, the, the rate at which runoff is increasing, could actually increase into the future. Like it's nonlinear. It's it's a looking at the graph. It's like a little bit. Uh, like a parabola a little bit in some places, like an increasing parabola, like it's going up a bit, maybe not quite exponential, but yeah, definitely like a Y equals X squared sort of function might fit that sort of thing. So that's, that's interesting. Why is it nonlinear? Do you think, why does it get even or uh, yeah, why, why is it nonlinear? Why doesn't it just increase at the same rate? What, what kind of mechanism starts to kick in there? Do Do we know? I suppose sometimes part of it is to do with, I mean, if you get lots of melting, uh, it makes the ice darker. It changes the albedo and how much reflection happens off the ice shelf surface. Um, and when you've got a darker surface, it warms up more so it can then melt more. And then you get this kind of almost runaway feedback effect, um, almost like you would see in the decline of Arctic sea ice. It's a similar sort of principle. Um, that's That's my general feeling for it. I don't know if there are other factors at play there might be um chris is nodding <laughs> no, I, I will, yeah i think it's also the the feedback and yeah basically you have more melt and then more melt leads to more and more melt mm. yeah okay more melt leads to more and more melt yeah yeah even more reason that... to avoid the worst melt uh, scenarios yeah that's right if we did explore this truly worst case scenario that we were talking about earlier, we definitely see the nonlinear aspects of the climate system kicking in for sure. Um, which is scary because that sort of nonlinear, the nonlinear behavior is, uh, you know, what could possibly kick the whole system into a very different regime quickly, uh, which would be not great. And you exactly. say that models also start to disagree much more with greater temperature rise. And I guess, do you want to speak to that? I mean, that's uh, there typically is a lot of spread in terms of how models predict the future because they don't all do exactly the same thing in terms of how different parts of the system are coupled. But maybe you could speak to that. Why do they 
disagree even more with greater temperature rise. Yeah, so it's it's more about the the fact of the time mm. rather than the actual temperature itself, because the models start to disagree more and more uh, the further into the future they go because of the uncertainty, because of the the many many factors that are playing into these projections of the future, and the temperature itself isn't necessarily the thing that's uncertain. It's yeah. it's about the time. So um, we see four degrees of warming at different times in different models, but it's between you know 2060s 2070s 2080s and some uh some models don't ever get to that within this century um but the ones that we used did so i I think yeah that's that's part of the reason i think there's something that i missed initially was that so you did use these different climate forcing scenarios but for your data points you said well let's extract data from when the model hits 1.5c when it hits 2c when it hits 4c is that correct exactly we wanted to make it a bit more policy relevant and relevant for you know you often hear in the media people talking about one and a half degrees talking about Mm -hmm. two degrees talking about four degrees but it doesn't make intuitive sense at least to me when someone says okay this is a 2075 world i don't really know what that means so, I mean, it could mean anything, really, depending on what we do. So if someone says, okay, well, you know, we're, we're going with RCP 8.5 and we're going to look at 2080 or 2100, what does that really mean, you know? So yeah. we wanted to do the the kind of the warming intervals to make it more intuitive, I guess, and more relevant. That's a good point. So when you're thinking about those climate projections, just giving somebody a year or even a scenario in a year, maybe isn't as meaningful as saying, well, what is the average temperature? What what world are we looking at? Um, that I'm reminded of this machine learning paper where um, the, the the algorithm, they, uh, they tried to make it predict the year. And it turns out you could predict the year pretty well because of the just kind of relentless pace of warming. Okay, so number six, looking at this, uh, six out of 13 from your Twitter thread, you said the amount and extent of ice shelf runoff increases with climate change, with the area of Antarctic ice shelves undergoing runoff increasing to 34% at four degrees C. And on the peninsula, that value is 67%. So you're saying that the area of Antarctic ice shelves that are undergoing this kind of runoff that increases under warming scenarios. Okay, when that that makes sense, right? That's kind of an, it feels like an intuitive result that you would get more runoff and more of the ice shelf area undergoing runoff, yeah? Yes, I mean, it it feels intuitive to me as well. Yeah, and on the peninsula, that value is 67%. Okay, so why do you think it's um, higher on the peninsula? Well, the peninsula is already warmer. It doesn't increase, Mm -hmm. it increases from a a higher point. It's maybe 30 or 40% in the historical period. So it's not actually increasing at uh, as fast a rate as the rest of Antarctica. And Mm -hmm. in, uh, if I I remember which plot you're looking at in that thread, Mm -hmm. it's one that's kind of time series and some are more linear looking like the Antarctic Peninsula. And then there are some that are more exponential looking like the East Antarctic, for instance. Yeah, uh, like so Antar- Antarctic Peninsula looks pretty linear. Um, East Antarctica is a little bit nonlinear, and West Antarctica is kind of flat for a long time. And then around 2060, it really starts to jump up in West Antarctica. 
So that's really interesting that there's such a diversity of behavior in terms of the extent of the ice shelf runoff between those different parts of Antarctica. It's a good reminder that Antarctica is not one monolithic system, that different parts of it respond in different ways. Why do you think uh, West, Antar West Antarctica is so kind of flat for a long time and then really starts to, uh, um, the runoff extent really increases nonlinearly later in the century? For me, I think it's because a lot of the, the current warming in West Antarctica is from the ocean. Mm. And then it takes a while for the temperatures to warm up in the atmosphere sufficiently that they start to dramatically increase runoff and surface melting because you've got a lot more precipitation going on in the beginning of the simulations in West Antarctica. It's got very mm -hmm. high mountains, so you get lots and lots of snowfall. So the right. snowfall for a long time is much more extreme than the melting that's going on. So you've got, like Chris was saying earlier, this competition between snowfall and loss to melting, etc., and the snowfall wins for nice. 60, 70 years. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, okay. That. yeah that. and maybe it's also because the the, the West Antarctic ice sheet is close to the to the South Pole. So you know, basically, yeah, the closest you are from the pole, then the the coldest it is. And so for the peninsula, it's the northern part of the the ice sheet. So that's maybe why it's already warmer than all the other region. And maybe for the the East Antarctic, then yeah, it's you have a kind of uh, ranking and then it's first the peninsula and then the east and finally the, the west. I think what I found really interesting was this, this change, the quite marked change in the East Antarctic because for so many years we're used to hearing that the East Antarctic is cooling, we're used to hearing that there's very little change happening in the East Antarctic. But several papers have come out in the last few years that have said actually the East Antarctic is starting to change and that this is likely to continue in the future. And yeah. a few researchers have published work looking at what's likely to happen actually somewhat alarmingly does agree. I mean, it's, it's good in the sense that it, the models agree and that we are simulating the right sort of processes, but it's obviously bad news for the East Antarctic, which contains a huge amount of ice. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, okay. So, I'm looking at 7 out of 13. They say, lastly, we look at runoff duration, which also increases with warming. Can you help me? What does runoff duration mean? So that's just the, the number of days per year where runoff occurs. And so it's, not a it's, it's another measure year. of the same sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's basically three ways of looking at runoff and melting. So the amount of melt increases, the amount of runoff increases, and then the area undergoing melt and runoff increases, and then also for the length of time that the melt and runoff occurs, that also increases. Yeah. So it's basically just going through, showing that it's amount, duration, and extent all increase with warming. Yeah. So there is a seasonal cycle down there. And uh, there are times of the year when it's not, you don't have runoff, and times of the year when you do have runoff. So that's a really good point yeah. to, to clear. And as Chris was saying earlier, like the further north you are, the more... You, the temperatures reach zero because it's warmer. So, for mm. example, in the northern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, you get melting and runoff occurring a much larger proportion of the year than you do mm. in the cold ice shelves like the um, the Ross or the Filchner Ronnie, mm -hmm. which are huge and very cold. Yeah, I'm looking at 
that figure with your multi-model mean for the four degrees C case and the mean runoff duration on the peninsula is like 60 days per year or more. Whereas for the Filsner-Rani and the, um, the one in the Ross, the one uh, with the, associated with the Ross Sea, it's pretty small. It's kind of closer to the zero end of your scale there in terms of runoff. So it's really yeah, if I remember, it's something like three. Three. <laughs> it's it's the, a small uh, number. Yeah. Taken together, this indicates that many more ice shelves are at risk of destabilization and hydrofracturing driven collapse at higher levels of warming. The area at risk at 2 degrees C is half that at risk of 4 degrees C. Okay, yeah. Um, and it's interesting, you also made this point. We only looked at the surface mass balance. Many of the ice shelves where runoff increases are, are dynamically stable and therefore unlikely to collapse. And you cite this uh, lie at our 2020 paper in Nature. Do you want to talk more about that? That sounds like a bit of a caveat or something important to consider when interpreting the study? Definitely. So the dynamics refers to things like iceberg carving and the the way that ice shelves are compressed in either by their geography or the way that the ice um, has built itself up over time. So you get these kind of tensile pressures um, and stresses within the ice shelf that may mean they're either resistant to fracture or they are not resistant to fracture. And this Lyotel paper was a, a really cool study using machine learning to identify the, the dynamical stress regimes and which would be more likely to which were resilient to hydrofracture essentially. And okay. some of the ice shelves that you can see in our map plots that have very high runoff, very high melt at four degrees, they're resilient to hydrofracture. Um, mm. One of them on the Antarctic Peninsula, we already see huge amounts of melting on the George the Sixth ice shelf, but because it's this really unique geography where it's essentially an ice, a frozen river between two segments of land it's really not likely to collapse anytime soon because it would essentially have to entirely melt away it's probably not going to fracture um and other other ice shelves such as the amory and the uh, king baudouin are also similar so they've got this they're, they're quite resilient um mm. even even despite the fact that there's lots of runoff in the simulations they we see runoff and meltwater ponding now in the present on those yeah. ice shelves, and it hasn't had a big impact yet either. So you do identify some. So what, I guess to summarize that, you there's some risk associated with the runoff, but then there's also a risk factor associated with how stable or unstable the particular ice shelves are to this kind of hydrofracturing induced collapse, and uh, your paper is focusing on the meltwater hydrofracturing risk part of it and not the dynamical stability part of it. Yeah, cool. Good. You do identify a few as being vulnerable. Larsen C, which is on the peninsula. Wilkins, which is kind of on the western part of the peninsula. Pine Island, which that one's kind of a famous one. The Pine Island Glacier, kind of in the around the Amundsen Sea area. That one's uh, this focus of an international US-UK um, project right now to go take some measurements of the warm water that 
is intruding up underneath the ice shelf, which might be uh, melting it a bit more aggressively than in the past. So you also identify the Shackleton ice shelf. The Shackleton is sort of, um, I guess that's like the Antarctic sector of, uh, sorry, the Australian sector of Antarctica, it looks like roughly from... East Antarctica, uh, from, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, that's funny. I was thinking about all of them from an ocean reference point and not the not the geographical, you know, on the land reference points. What a, what a great study. Like, this is such a cool paper and it's really uh, cool to see what what you both have done in terms of taking this model, running it through some downscaling experiments, looking at the risk, um, and you got some really concrete conclusions out of it. And uh, I think this, it's so cool. So Ella, you also write the conclusion, more climate action to reduce emissions and limit temperature rise will minimize the risk of Antarctic ice shelf collapse and the associated sea level rise. Yeah. That's a very good point and a very good kind of practical summary from your letter. You, you wrote a thing on Carbon Brief and you did a video explainer. You've been doing really awesome outreach uh, associated with this paper. It's, it's great. Yeah, there was a conversation piece as well. I did a lot of uh, interviews. Chris, mm -hmm. you, wrote, you wrote a press release in French as well, didn't you? Uh, yeah, uh, a bit later than, than yours, but yeah. Great. Uh, so how did you end up working on this together? What was the kind of pathway that led you to to collaborate on this? Chris saved my bacon is the the, the short answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really? I had a short I had a short um, research project funded, and originally it was meant to be looking at the future surface mass balance of the Antarctic ice shelves, mm -hmm. but it was meant to be using the Australian model. Uh, because the data were supposedly online and freely available. So the funding was to to use data that were already available uh, that hadn't been utilised yet to, to mm -hmm. do any science with. So that okay. was what it was for. Turned out that the data from the Australian model was not... <laughs> they had to rerun it several times. Oh. So it wasn't ready and it wasn't available. Oh and... Gosh. Um, Chris had been working for his thesis and for this paper that we were talking about earlier um, using these Mars simulations and had done all of this foundation work to figure out which CMIT models were the best ones to do the simulations themselves, to validate the simulations. So Chris has done a huge amount of work yeah. before we even start getting to this point so thanks. <laughs> thanks to chris this this project came off so i just did the sort of the final analysis bit <laughs> at the end of you know putting it together into a paper but i think it really did help because chris had done a very comprehensive study beforehand and we you know he already had some insight into that and then we we defined a very a narrow scope which was really helpful because it meant that we had less stuff and I mean, we only, I only had three months of funding. Um, actually, no, it ended up being four, uh, but to, to fit it into a GRL paper, which is a very short format, which mm -hmm. is high impact, but short, you have to mm -hmm. necessarily just cut the stuff that's unnecessary. So focusing really narrowly on ice shelves firstly was a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. Um, rather than including ice sheets, which Chris had looked at before. And then also only looking at those three processes, the surface mass balance on, you know, as total, and then run off and melt rather than the whole 
surface mass balance equation, I think, was a touch. Yeah. I mean, that points to how useful it can be to fix a few of the variables and fix a few of the sources of complexity and say, let's limit the scope and just look at a couple of the the knobs that you one could imagine getting turned because there's so much complexity in the climate system that, you know, if you don't fix some of the variables and focus in, you get overwhelmed very quickly. So how did you find out that Chris was doing that work? Like what was the net, what was the step where you kind of, how did you become aware that he was doing something similar? I think we firstly met at uh, Copenhagen for uh, yeah, yeah. Um, um, polar meeting. So he just gathers some scientists that are using uh, regional climate models on the, mm. uh, yeah, on the, not just for the, is it only for the polar climate? There is definitely the Cordex community, which is coordinated regional downscaling experiment, um, is for the whole, like they do different regions, European, yeah. African, but for our community of polar Cordex, um, it's, it's a really great bunch of people. And I think part of the, a few of the people that you'll be working with if you end up going to Utrecht. Hmm. Ella, was that the one, I seem to remember you went to some meeting where you took trains and ferries from. Yes, that'll be that. To, that'll be that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that'll be the one. I always do that. Uh, yeah. I went to, to Sweden, seven changes, seven, mm -hmm. 27 hours was the shortest I've ever managed to do mm. Sweden in. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, <laughs> it was a, good, a really good meeting actually, that protocodex. And I think the, the group of regional climate modelers working on the polar, the polar regions are fantastic. They're such a great group of people. I, I mean, Chris, I, I'm sure you have a similar experience, but just everyone is so friendly and up for it. And ev there's so much collaboration. You, do you have the same experience? You work with people from DMI and Utrecht and yeah. all over the... It's a kind of a very small community. Everyone knows, yeah, everyone. And, you know, it's just, yeah, only a few groups. And and then, yeah, it's very... So um, it's completely different when you go to, for example, the um, EGU, uh, where you have so many people and you only have maybe one or two, two that comes to, to talk to you. When in, in that kind of small community, everyone is talking to everyone and... Yeah, everyone knows what everyone is doing, so it's very nice. And and it's not just a kind of competition. So sometimes, you know, with uh, the um, other modern groups, then you, you try to do things uh, before them. But here it's more like yeah, a collaboration, and we try to, to create new projects. And it's, yeah, it was a very, very nice uh, yeah meeting. Yeah, promoting uh, each other's work, which I think is great. But because it's... It's the so cutting edge, you have to necessarily collaborate. I mean, Antarctic science or polar science is very collaborative. Regional mm -hmm. climate model development is can be quite collaborative and climate science generally is quite collaborative. So it's it's like the, the best bits of um, uh, a villi village life where everyone knows what everyone's doing, but everyone also uh, wants to help. Yeah, that's really lovely. I, I like that about the climate research community in general. I think that's typically true. I've, I've only heard of a couple of exceptions. You know, every now and then you run into a kind of hyper competitive situation where someone's trying to get something out before the other, but I think it's kind of rare. I think and, to uh, be a climate scientist though, you have to have 
a, at least some good bones in your body. You have to want to help because climate change is a problem that yeah. people recognize that, you know, you have to really want to do something about it. And I think that necessarily attracts some great people. Yeah. And it also probably helps that you can't make a lot of money doing it. So, you know, that, that, <laughs> that chases I'm away. still waiting for the climate science millions to come rolling in. <laughs> I still, I haven't seen it. I mean, my payments are super late. They, you know, they just haven't shown up yet. I don't think they're coming. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're not. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, it's true. So at least uh, the fact that you can't make a lot of money keeps away people who, you know, maybe just want to make money. There's nothing wrong with making money per se, but it, you know, it keeps away the folks who like, if that's their only motivation. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's great. I really like that idea that uh, you were able to, you know, physically meet. Imagine that. Remember that? Remember that going for places and like going for like conference dinners and things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that you were able to spark this collaboration in this kind of friendly, collaborative way. That's really great. So, so um, Chris, you were saying that you hadn't really moved very much from where you are. Could you yeah, but so yeah, I just. Yeah. Yeah, I study uh, geography and then climatology at the uh, University of Liège. And then mm -hmm. I start my PhD thesis there, exactly yeah, in the yeah. lab where I, I did my uh, master thesis. So, you know, it's the same groups, same people, so sm same small team. So now mm -hmm. I really need to, yeah, to go everywhere. <laughs> and in fact, the, um, the, the Polar Codex at Copenhagen was my first meeting where uh, I was without my advisor. So. I was a, a bit like a baby, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought about that, uh, yeah, two hours ago, and I was like, yeah, I met Eli. I was like a baby. Uh, I was still a PhD student, not uh, starting my mm. projection. It was like a totally different world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's funny, like, you say you're a baby. I mean, you were an adult, but, like, research-wise, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> research-wise, you felt like, Oh wow, you were kind of first getting into this community, and yeah, yeah, I remember doing that. I remember going to stuff and uh, just kind of on my own and trying to represent just myself a little bit more. And uh, yeah, it's definitely a threshold that you cross over at some point. Kind of and it's amazing it. you you develop the confidence in your own ability or your own work at some stage. I don't I, I don't know if anyone can really put a finger on when it is, but going to meetings and it's mad how quickly you learn things if you're a researcher. I mean, when when was that meeting? 2019? And mm. if you compare yourself now in 2021, you'll probably say that, wow, I, I know way more. I've got many more skills than I did then. Uh, but it's about having that confidence as a, as a scientist. And I think as an early career researcher, it can be quite daunting to go to those meetings, which makes it, it, it's a lot easier when it's a meeting that's very friendly and a small one. Where did that confidence come from, you think? Is it just enough small and medium positive interactions and positive experiences is just kind of built up over time? I mean, some people have to navigate negative experiences as well. And, you know, this, it could be difficult for somebody to keep their confidence through that. Some people do. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Is it just a, a cumulative people? You kind of dip your toe in the water and go talk to somebody at a poster, go listen to some talks, ask a question and get a sense of the community. And uh, 
this, I guess it might be something you build up over time like that, huh? Yeah, I think so. I mean, for me, I mean, I still get imposter syndrome for sure, but mm. I feel like I, I do at least know what I'm talking about with some very specific things. And I don't know, I feel it definitely was incremental because I don't remember waking up one day and being like, you know what? I'm a great scientist. <laughs> That's never happened to me. Yeah. I don't yeah. know if it, maybe you've had one of those Eureka moments, Chris. I don't know. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I would only say that yeah. since I, I finished the, the PhD thesis, I'm like, okay, so no, I, I at least have a title. And yeah, <laughs> I can say, okay. <laughs> At least somebody yeah. thinks that I'm good enough yeah. to give me two extra letters. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Finally, a gender-neutral title. Hooray! <laughs> that's, just, <laughs> that's what I wanted for so long. <laughs> um, yeah, so that that does help, right? I mean, it's obviously not everything. It's not the end of the road. Um, but getting passing that threshold really does help because, like, like you say, that now there's some set of people have looked at your work and have said, yes, they have made a contribution, a, a significant contribution to the field, and they're a scientist. But that being said, I want to shout out to all of our colleagues out there who don't have doctorates, who can absolutely be full members of the community and fully participate, you know, scientifically. It's not a requirement. So, I mean, you know, for some of us, it's been like a nice thing to get because like Ella was saying, and I'll just speak for myself, that, yeah, it did kind of help my imposter syndrome and my feeling of self-confidence. It, it did help that. But it's not, I don't want it to be seen as an absolute, like, requirement for participating in science, right? Yeah, like, we've got some awesome colleagues who don't have a doctorate for whatever reason, and they're just, a lot of them are doing really, really good work. Yeah, that's totally. true. Yeah. Um, yeah, goodness. I, my mind was drifting a little bit. You know, I, when I mentioned some people going through negative experiences, um, as part of EGU, I watched this documentary. Um, it was a picture of scientist. Is, is the oh, it's such a good film. That one's really good. Yeah. Do you know that one, Chris? Have you seen, seen that one? No. Yeah. So this one, it's interviews with a lot of scientists exploring issues of like discrimination and sexism and racism in the field that you know people have encountered and it's uh it's hard it's difficult to watch in a good way you know it's difficult because you're watching like a genuine depiction of people going through um really unfair and really horrible situations and, and abusive situations um and you know it can be really difficult for people to push through that and they shouldn't have to they shouldn't have to push through it but a lot of people do um, and they end up as scientists on the other side of it. So the, um, anyway, it's just, it was worth watching and I guess worth considering that um, you know, there are different sets of barriers that some of us have to go through and encounter along the way um, when I was thinking about those positive and negative experiences. Anyway, I don't know where I was going with that, but that's just maybe just a plug for that documentary because it's really It's really good, watching. yeah. I feel very yeah. lucky that I've had a really positive experience of research because I know so, like, even just from watching that film, but anecdotally, I know so many people who've had a, a horrible experience. Mm -hmm. I, I, I box with someone who finished her PhD early because she had such an awful 
situation with oh. her PhD supervisors. And I know that it's not uncommon in a way. Mm-hmm. And I, ha- oh. I had a, an amazing department, amazing team at the British Antarctic Server. Everyone is so friendly and so helpful. Mm-hmm. And then being involved in this you know, polar regional climate modeling community, which is also so helpful, so friendly, so lovely. I just feel like I didn't have any bad experiences beyond, you know, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing, which I think is a universal experience for PhD students. Um, and generally in research, I've been really lucky with with bosses, with supervisors, with colleagues, never had any really negative experiences. And to be honest, I think that's really lucky. Mm. Yeah, well, that's amazing. I'm glad. I'm glad you've had positive experiences all the way through. So hopefully that will continue. Yes, long um, may it continue. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Chris, we started on this thread of like, you know, your pathway. Did you grow up around Leash? Is that also yes. kind of where you yeah, um, yeah. I think at twenty kilometers, maybe something like that. So okay. you know, Liege is not a very big city, but yeah, mm-hmm. you still have um yeah um habitation, so you still uh the, the town where I come from is very near Liege, so <laughs> And it's the same yeah. reason you see exactly the same things and mm. <laughs> same culture. Yeah. The people talk with the same way. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just thinking like there's been a lot of famous philosophers who haven't moved very far from where they grew up. So, like, you know, you don't have to. You can, yeah, you yeah, can stay. <laughs> You're in good company. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can still lead a full, you know, intellectual life, <laughs> even just <laughs> staying where you were born. And, uh, Especially if you can get out and travel a little bit, then that expands your horizons a bit. And, you know, even if you live in the same place, you can see other parts of the world a bit. Like Copenhagen, for example. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, far away, exotic Copenhagen. So why don't you tell us a bit about what you can do at Utrecht, maybe? And then what about you when you go to Grenoble? So, um, the, yeah, um, the idea for Utrecht is to uh, keep on, on my uh, TZIP su- subject. Then um, it's a three-month postdoc and working on uh, surface mass balance projections, but this time not only with MAR, but with uh, RACMO, so it's the regional climate model that is developed at uh, Utrecht. So, um, and I, I hope you, I won't urge you, but if I say that MAR and RACMO are the best regional climate models. I'm not offended. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. I'm joking, but yeah. Um, you know, it's maybe, yeah, it, it's the, the model that have been the most developed for, for the polar region. So, yeah, the, the goal is to compare the projection and try to understand uh, why we have difference in the projection. Because for, for the paper we, we wrote with Ella, um, yeah, we just try to, to predict the future of the, the HL, but we don't try to understand why it will evolve like this. So we have different uh, resu- res- different results, and yeah, we just say okay, we have different results, but we don't, we haven't tried to understand why. So that that will be the the purpose of the postdoc, and then for Grenoble, it's completely different. I will come back to the ocean, because the original uh, subject of my thesis was to couple Mars with uh, an ocean model. Then mm-hmm. maybe you you know it, it's Nemo. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah and. So at Grenoble, I will work with Mar and Nemo and try to, um, yeah, to fully represent the, the climate around the West Antarctic ice sheet. So 
we're using uh, the, uh, an atmospheric model, so SOMAR, an ocean model, uh, NEMO, and maybe also a night sheet model with this, uh, I think, Elmer. But yeah, mm -hmm. we have a, a kind of uh, three, uh, three uh, models to couple together and try to yeah, fully represent everything. Uh, wow. Not, not everything, but everything we, we know from now. <laughs> yeah. Such an exciting prospect to be able to have all of those interactive elements feeding yeah. into each other because, I mean, even from just an atmospheric perspective, there's so much going on that to have an actual ice sheet model that evolves and have an ocean that gives you a dynamic forcing, that sounds, sounds like a lot to mm. technically manage, but I think if you manage that, that would be so useful. Yeah, absolutely. And like we were saying before, there will be trade-offs between resolution and how many of these processes to include and how long can you run the model. And it sounds like you're going to be getting your hands uh, dirty with the, you know, the details, digging into the details, digging into the dirt of all of that. And uh, yeah, that sounds exciting. Well, what else do we want to talk about? Is there anything else we want to cover? Um, do we feel good about the episode so far i feel good <laughs> about the episodes specifically <laughs> yeah yeah that's right no i mean there's yeah we, we are being specific yeah yeah i think that's that's most of the content i mean we, we got through the paper yeah did you want to talk a bit about your other paper chris um yeah if you want but yeah it, it, yeah it's it's true, it's a kind of companion paper from, from ours. Um, so, yeah. This is, this is the cryosphere one, the diverging yeah. future surface mass balance between the Antarctic ice shelves and grounded ice sheet. This is the one that's in the cryosphere. Yeah, exactly. Um, where's the, where's the tweet thread? Oh, I need your tweet thread. Yeah, there's also a tweet thread. <laughs> is there? Yeah, no, Chris has written one about Ooh. that paper. Okay, go ahead. You go ahead and introduce it, and I'll look for it. <laughs> At C two Kittle is his Twitter handle. <laughs> um, yeah, so just we use exactly the same uh, regional climate model, and since yeah, with uh, the same um, global model to to first it, and what we wanted to to see is just to yeah the the projection of the surface mass balance, but yeah, not just for the ice shelf, but also for the grounded ice. So because maybe we forgot to mention it, but with LR, we look at the, the ice shape because when they collapse, they um, lead to a very strong uh, dynamical reaction. So what's happened already, uh, it's already happened on the, the peninsula, but when the ice shape collapsed, then all the, the ice that were stored on the, on the continent then um, really um, increased the, the speed up to the ocean. And then it's yeah this ice discharge has uh, increased the um, yeah the sea level, so that's why we we, we work on that subject with Ella is to, just to to try to understand where they will the ice shape will disappear and so where the the glacier will speed up and go to the to the ocean. But in my other paper, I work on the entire continent because uh, if you have a positive SMB over the grounded ice, then you directly store some. Uh, yeah, water mass on the continent, then you decrease the sea level. So, you know, surface mass balance for that have a kind of uh, direct influence on the sea level rise. 
And contrary to the Greenland ice sheet, what we found is that we will have more, much more uh, ice that we, we store over the, the grounded ice. And so surface mass balance will be a kind of uh, mitigator to the sea level rise. And actually, it's maybe the only one that is negative for all the cryosphere. So what I mean is that um, for the, the Antarctic surface mass balance will probably uh, decrease the sea level rise, uh, while all the other elements for the cryosphere in a warmer climate will increase the sea level. So that was the motivation of the paper. And yeah, we, we tried to um, understand the physical process that lead to change in precipitation and in, uh, in runoff. And maybe which is much more interesting is that we found a connection with the um, global uh, warming. So, you know, we only use four, four models to force mass. So I have only had four simulation. And just as I said before, with first simulation, you don't have a global view of what of all what could happening, all what could happen. Sorry, and so I found a connection with the global warming, and then I tried to um, statically reproduce the change using all the same models. So I use eighty models and all the IPCC scenarios to to reconstruct the surface mass balance evolution. So we we found a coin kind of good yeah, estimation of the, the surface mass balance contribution to the mitigation of the sea level rise. I think that was the coolest part of, of the paper. Yeah, definitely. Using this subset and the understanding that you gain from those four models and then applying it more widely, it's just like it's a very efficient way of doing science. You don't have to do the same in-depth, de in analysis of all of the CMIP models because there are so many and it takes so much work to evaluate them that to have okay so we've got our understanding from these four that we know are really good to then apply it to a wider suite of of models I thought yeah it was very cool also the the fact that you found this two and a half degree threshold I thought that yeah. was cool <laughs> as well which maybe um, you could explain yeah sure so um, linking the those change with the, the global mapping we found some quite threshold and it was quite interesting because at two degrees uh, and a half uh, warming from today's temperature, then um, the surface mass balance over the DHF start to decrease. So basically it means that we will have yeah, lower accumulation and then probably um, ice uh, shelf collapse. And that's the direct link with our paper with Zella. And the other threshold that I found is, the, um, is over the grounded ice. So um, as I mentioned before, uh, in a warmer climate, then you will have much more humidity and then much more precipitation on the ice sheet. So we will have a positive SMB. And we found that at uh, yeah, nearly seven degrees, uh, in a seven degrees warmer climate than, than today's condition, you this increase will stop. So it means that at that uh, warming, it's the runoff that uh, become the, the stronger. And so uh, the surface mass balance starts to, to not increasing and maybe it will decrease. So we, uh, we, we found a temperature threshold where the surface mass balance will uh, stop acting like a mitigator to sea level rise. But here's hoping we never get to that point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that threshold is quite uh, uncertain because we use the warmest model 
using the warmest scenario. So, you know, it's, yeah, we still have to work on, yeah, longer projection to, to assess the confidence of that tracer. Hmm. Nice. Thanks for the summary. Thanks for the summary. <laughs> I appreciate that. Is uh, I've noticed that I'm I'm pretty tired. I think I need some coffee or something, or maybe some more water. I think I'm kind of winding winding down a little bit. But I want to make sure that everybody feels good and that we've kind of said what we want to say and covered what we want to say. Anything else you want to talk about, Chris? No, thanks. Um, yeah, I was really glad to be here to chat with you. It was a very nice uh, experience. Thank oh, you. Good. I'm glad. Oh, yeah. Thank you for coming along and for agreeing to be a part of it. I really enjoyed yeah. talking with you. And, yeah. And thank you, LF, for coming along as well. And uh, I like how even though, even though you said you weren't going to co-host, you started co-hosting, which I appreciate right. anyway. Kinda, <laughs> no, no, no. No, it's just because no, I know no. that I've read the paper. I know yeah, that. Yeah. Chris is being, you know, downplaying it, and I, I know that there's some real interesting nuggets in in there. Yeah. Um, no, I was glad when you were did. right for like, the plucking. Oh good, oh, oh good. Like when you started, <laughs> when you effectively started co-hosting, I was like, oh good, thank goodness. I, really, <laughs> I noticed I really, that you were in need of coffee, Dan. That was obviously it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really like having a co-host. I like having you as my co-host, especially. It's very nice. You're 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 a pro. Thank you're you. Pro thank pro you. science communicator. Oh, need to sort out the internet connection because it seems to be a, a recurring theme apart from that yeah. pro yeah i mean this this website we're using seems pretty good um i think i know that some really professional podcasts you know they plug in they get like a physical connection but um that one's all the way downstairs in a weird place so and uh, yeah, i'm not really prepared to run cable all throughout the house to <laughs> to, to plug in so I think you just have to cross my fingers and hope the Wi-Fi is good on the days when we want to record. Because <laughs> this is a free podcast and you get what you pay for, folks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, have a really good weekend. It was very excellent to talk to both of you. Yeah, and thanks for giving us the opportunity to talk about our work. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. And thanks, Chris, yeah. for being a fantastic co-author and a fantastic co-podcast-D. Cool. <laughs> that was guest. not the right word, but you, yeah, guest. That's it. That's oh, it. <laughs> uh, all right. Talk to you both later. Bye, Chris. Bye, Ella. Ciao. Thank Bye. you. Thank you. There you have it. My conversation with Ella Gilbert, one of our regular co-hosts, of course, and Chris could tell. The paper again is called Surface Melt and Runoff on Antarctic Ice Shells at 1.5, 2, and 4 degrees C of future warming in Geophysical Research Letters. That's the place that has been published, Geophysical Research Letters. You can find Chris on Twitter at C2Kittel, where 2 is the number 2. You can find Ella at Dr. Underscore Gilbs with a Z or a Z. You can find me at Dan Jones Ocean, and you can follow the podcast at Climate Side Pod. Okay, here's some credits. Editing by Sean Williams Page. Audio engineering by Lillian Blair. And uh, all the other stuff by myself and Ella as the co-host. We also have Caitlin Naughton on as a co-producer and co-host, especially for those disability episodes. Thanks to our patron, Chelsea Baker, thanks for your donations on Patreon. 
Okay, I've got a conversation with Tom Rossby coming up. So if you have questions for Professor Tom Rossby, please send them to me, direct message, uh, email, whatever you got. So take care. Talk to you later. Hope you're doing well. Bye-bye.